Man, it is so good to be back with you guys again. Uh, welcome. How are you doing? Good. It's great to see you. Uh, my family and I have been gone for the last few weeks on some family vacation. Um, we got some time out of the office, some time away. We actually had two family reunions, both of them in Tennessee. My wife's side of the family and my side of the family both. We all live all across the country, and so Tennessee was kind of central. So I took two trips down there. And it's been great uh, just to unplug and get away and see people I haven't seen in years of my own family. But I always miss this place. I could not wait to get back here this morning and be with you guys again and worship uh, together as a team. So it's just it's great to be back. And it's also great to be jumping in week number two of this series called Fragile Faith. What we're doing is we're talking about these three different shifts that we have to make in our lives uh, if we want to grow in our faith, if we want to grow our faith in, in the person of Jesus. And so last week, uh, we talked about the move from religion to the person of Jesus. David did a great job starting us off on that. And so today, I want to take us down the road of the next shift that happens internally inside of us. And so um, I'll introduce it this way. I have some major problems when it comes to sleep. Uh, many of you who know me personally, you know this is a thing in my life. I've just, I've always had a really hard time falling asleep at night and staying asleep. I've actually had a sleep study done, like where I went into the doctor and they monitored me. I don't have sleep apnea or any of the kind of other problems people tend to have when they can't fall asleep. It's neurological with me. And so there's not a whole lot that they can do for me. So just to give you a picture, my current routine right now is every night uh, before bed, I take 10 milligrams of melatonin. And then every morning, the first thing I do when I wake up is I check my Fitbit uh, app and I look to see what kind of sleep I got. And here's the thing, if, if I got like four and a half to five hours of actual sleep throughout the night, I am like, yes, that is a great night's sleep for me. Seriously, about four and a half hours. If I got four and a half hours, I'm like, yes, I had a really good night's sleep. And I feel proud of myself. It's like an accomplishment if I managed to get that much sleep in a night. It's just a major struggle for me. Uh, several years ago, I was on a trip to Haiti, missions trip. I was with a group of pastors, and we were ministering to pastors in Haiti. And the nights were steaming hot. There was no air conditioning in the, in the cabins where we were sleeping. And there was all these weird sounds and weird smells all night. So literally for the first two nights, I did not sleep. And so by the third day, I was just miserable. And the rest of the team, they could tell I was miserable. I mean, I was just struggling to, to get through the day and to, and to be fully present and engaged with what was happening. And so on the third night, one of the other pastors on our team, I'll never forget, he had this little bottle of pills. And he says to me, hey, why don't you take one of these? It'll help you sleep. And I'll never forget, he holds out to me, it's this little white oval-shaped pill. And at that point, I hadn't slept for two days. I was like, whatever, man. If it'll help me sleep, I'll take it. I don't care. Uh, not a good idea. Not a good practice, by the way. Even from pastors, you shouldn't take drugs usually. And so uh, I, took, I, I took this pill. And here's the thing. I've, had all, I've tried all kinds of sleeping pills, all kinds of sleeping remedies. Typically, nothing works on me. So I just thought, this isn't going to work. It's going to be no different. I popped this pill. Within 15 minutes, I was out cold. And the next morning, I woke up. I had the best night's sleep, I kid you not, of probably of my entire life. I was just shocked. So I went to this pastor and I said, what did you give me last night? What was that pill? And he said, oh, it's called Ambien. That's what it's called. And I was like, that's amazing. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so that night I said, would you give me another pill? He gave me another pill. The rest of that week in Haiti, I had maybe the best week of sleep that I've ever had in my life. 
So I went home from Haiti and immediately made an appointment with my doctor and I got my own prescription of Ambien. And so that began a relationship with the drug Ambien that lasted. It was a relationship of dependence that went on for about four years where every single night I would take one of these little white oval-shaped pills and I would fall asleep. And that, that four-year period was the best I've slept in my entire life. Um, sounds great. The only problem was after about four years, one pill wasn't quite doing it. So I was actually up and I was taking one pill and then part of another pill. And so my prescription requests were going up and I was asking for more and more. And my wife, who is an RN, and my doctor both began to become concerned about me. And they both began to say, hey, you, you got to stop this. The other thing that was happening was I literally got to the point where I was so dependent on the, on the pill that I could not fall asleep at night if I didn't have it. Not kidding at all. Like, it was impossible for me to actually shut my brain down and go to sleep. If I would, like, go on a trip or something, I'd forget the pill bottle. I would literally just stay up. I would not sleep. It, it, was, it was awful. And so they began to plead with me. There had been studies that had come out showing that memory is affected. Early onset dementia happens if you take that pill for long periods of time. All these health problems can happen. And so they began to plead with me, you've got to get off this drug. You've got to get on some kind of a plan to get free and not be so dependent on Ambien. And so I began what was about an eight to nine month journey. I had this little pill cutter. And so what happened is I first I went backwards to just one pill because I was taking more than one pill. And then I remember I, I would cut the pill down to three quarters of a pill every night. And then finally got to the point where it was half a pill every night and I could fall asleep. And then it was a quarter pill. And I kid you not, it's ridiculous. I got down to where it was an eighth of a pill. I mean, I'm literally cutting this little tiny piece off this oval pill so I can fall asleep at night. And eventually after like eight or nine months, I got to the point where I was completely off of Ambien. And I don't sleep great at night, but I will tell you this, for almost two years now, I have been completely Ambien free. So... <laughs> Praise God for that. Now, here's why I tell you that. Uh, isn't it interesting? I mean, you guys just clapped. You, gla- you clapped for a pastor getting off of drugs. That's awesome. Uh, in church. <laughs> there, why did we clap for that? Why do we celebrate when people become free from something they've become dependent on? It's because we know intrinsically in our world, in our culture, we know dependence is a bad word. I mean, when we think about our addictions, when we think about the idea of becoming dependent upon anything, we know that's a bad thing. That's a bad word. We celebrate when people get free and they become independent from whatever it is that they've been addicted to or dependent on. In fact, I would say it this way. Whenever you think about worldly maturity, what does it mean to grow up? What does it mean to to become a mature, fully functioning person? It's always a move from dependence to independence. That's what we want. Dependence is a bad word. We move from dependence to independence if we want to grow up and become mature. Physically, this is true, right? When a little infant is born, when a baby is born, they are 100% dependent on their parents. Well, on their mother, let's be honest, guys. We don't really do very much in those early days. I mean, they are 100% dependent. Every need they have, if that mother does not care for that child, that child will die, literally. That's how we're brought into this world. And so how do you know when a child is maturing? How do you know when a child is growing up? Well, well, you know it because they get to a point where they move from complete dependence on their mother to independence. They start to be able to meet their own needs, take care of their own problems, you know, you know take food and, and take care of themselves for themselves. That's how you know a child is growing up and maturing. Financially, this is true, right? 
How do you know when somebody is growing up? Well, they move from dependence to independence financially. That's the goal for everyone, right? That we would not live in our parents' basement for the rest of our lives. That we would not be dependent on the government for all ever. You know someone is growing up when they move from dependence to a place of independence. That's a good thing. And so we celebrate that, and that's how we think of maturity. But what's interesting is we think about this shift that we're talking about this morning. Whenever the Bible talks about spiritual maturity, what it means to grow in our faith, what it means to grow in Christ, it's actually the opposite. Spiritual maturity, whenever it's talked about in the Scriptures, is always a move from independence, self-reliance, to a place of dependence on the person of Jesus. It's a shift, it's a move that happens internally in our lives from being independent and self-reliant to a place of dependence on the person of Jesus in our life. I want to take you to a passage of scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And I just want to explore that a little bit today where Jesus talks about this move right here from independence to dependence on him. Um, But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of context of this passage before we jump straight into it. Uh, So Jesus' disciples were Jewish people. He came from a Jewish context. And for Jewish people, there was a metaphor that they understood uh, that referred to them as God's chosen people. Over and over again, if you read the Old Testament of the Bible, the, the nation of Israel is referred to as God's vineyard. You see it in multiple places, the vineyard of God. There's this picture, this metaphor that's, that's given. The people of God of Israel were the vineyard, and God was like the gardener. He was the owner of the vineyard. That language comes up again and again in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. The prophet Isaiah talks about it. In Isaiah 5, 7, uh, he says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. And so there's this idea, Israel is God's vineyard. God is the gardener, and so God is tending the vineyard. But what's happened is Israel has not produced the crop that God had wanted. They're not producing the fruit, the crop that God was looking for, that God was expecting. And so God is not pleased with them. He's not happy with them. Then later on, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this day that's coming in this future. He's speaking prophetically about this day that would be coming where God would make things right. In Isaiah 27, this is what it says. In that day, this day that's coming, sing about a fruitful vineyard. Because Israel hadn't produced fruit that had pleased God. So sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. And in days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. So God says, this day is coming where I'm going to make things right. And Israel is going to bud and blossom. And Israel is going to produce fruit that is pleasing to me. And what's going to happen is is the fruit of Israel, God's people, is going to fill the entire world. So that's the metaphor. If you're one of Jesus' followers, if you're a Jewish person, you knew that metaphor. You knew that's, uh, that was how God was pictured. That's how Israel was pictured. And Jesus comes along in John 15, this passage we're going to look at, and he basically inserts himself right in the middle of this metaphor, right between God and his vineyard of Israel. And he begins to speak about this entire idea of a vineyard. Let's join in together. This is John 15, starting in verse 1. 
Jesus says this, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. What's the message Jesus had given? We know it as the gospel. The message that it's only through trust and faith in the person of Jesus that we can find salvation. Jesus says, you've already been pruned. You've already been uh, uh, brought into that, that relationship with God because of the message I have given you. So then he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you'll do some. Apart from me, it'll be okay. You'll you'll get some stuff done. No, apart from me, literally, you can do nothing. You can produce no fruit apart from me, Jesus insists. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So Jesus comes along in this very familiar metaphor. God's a gardener and Israel's the vineyard. And Jesus inserts himself right in the middle of it. And he says, those passages... The idea that this coming day was going to come when God would make the vineyard fruitful, he's saying it, that pointed to me, Jesus is saying. That applied to me. That day is now here in me. I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and you are the branches. And the only way you're going to produce fruit, the only way you're going to produce anything that's pleasing to God is by remaining in me. That's the relationship that Jesus describes that he invites all of us as his followers into. It's interesting, if you think about our world, uh, people all the time are looking for counselors and mentors and coaches, right? I'm amazed how often I'm asked to be a counselor for someone or a mentor to someone, maybe somebody else in ministry to be a coach for them. And I have people like that in my life. I have people that serve as a mentor to me or a counselor or a coach to me, and that's great. And they give me great advice, and then I go and I do it. I take their advice, but it's about me going and doing it. And that is not at all the kind of relationship that Jesus is offering here. In the West, a lot of times we read this passage and we go, okay, Jesus is kind of like a, a coach. He's kind of like a mentor. So, so Jesus, like, we come to him, he gives us some good advice, and then we go and we do it. And that's actually not the gospel. The gospel is not we come to Jesus, he gives us advice while we try to do it. The gospel is apart from me, you can do nothing. The gospel is actually inviting us into something much more intimate with the person of Jesus than just a counselor or a coach or a mentor. 
It's something completely different. The key is in understanding this word remain. Jesus says the key to this relationship is remain in me. The word remain is kind of a complicated word. It's the Greek word meno, which means to stay. It can refer to staying in a given place or in a given state, but it means to stay. And it's translated as a, a few different words whenever you find the word meno. A few other ways it's translated is abide. Some of you are familiar with this passage where the word abide was used, abide in me. Um, sometimes it's translated continue. It can mean dwell, endure, be present, stand, or wait for. So that's the kind of relationship Jesus is inviting us into. It's a relationship where we remain, we abide, we, we're, we're present, we wait for him, we remain in him. The word I like personally that I think describes the kind of relationship that Jesus invites us into as his disciples is the word dependence. I love the word dependence. I think it communicates this relationship so well. But it, oftentimes it's such a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bad word in our culture. We dependent. You don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything, right? We're independent. That's what we are. We're individuals. That's what we're about. And it's funny because if, when you think about this idea of dependence, it's the uh, complete opposite of the kind of spirituality we think that God wants from us. <laughs> when we think about what God wants from us in our spiritual life, it's almost like a DIY spirituality. It's a do-it-yourself spirituality where it's about me performing. It's about me doing it, and, and God's watching, and I hope I get it right. I hope I'm able to produce fruit. But over and over again, the scriptures were told, no matter what Israel did, Israel could not produce the fruit that God was looking for. And so the only way that we, we can produce fruit is through remaining in Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the invitation. And, and so really what's at stake here is this choice between dependence or do-it-yourself spirituality. It's a choice between entering in, making this shift from independence to dependence on the person of Jesus or continuing to operate in this do-it-yourself DIY spirituality where I do it. Maybe Jesus gives me some advice. He helps me out a little bit, but it's basically about me doing it. This way of life, the dependence way of life, according to Jesus, and this is absolutely true for those of us who are, the more we live into this, it leads to more joy. Jesus says, my joy will be in you and your joy will overflow. My joy will be complete in you. It leads to us seeing God do more and more and more in our lives. DIY spirituality, the independent life, it just leads to burnout and exhaustion and ultimately total failure. So we can't do it. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And so this is what he invites us into. Now, maybe you're sitting there right now and you're saying to yourself, oh, I, okay, come on. I don't have a do-it-yourself spirituality. But I, I would say to you, DIY spirituality, the independent life, it's actually every single one of our default modes. And you know, you know where you can hear it? You can hear it in the way we pray. T listen to the way you pray and listen to the way that other people pray. It's our default mode. You can hear it all the time in the ways we pray. It's almost funny. It's like one of those things, once you hear it, it's like you can't unhear it. Like, like this. This is the way we pray a lot of times. We'll pray and we'll say things like, oh, God, will you help me? Would you help me to stop looking at porn and to stop drinking so much alcohol? Would you help me to do that? God, give me strength. 
when it comes to my addiction so I can stop whatever it is. God, help me. Would you help me to forgive so-and-so? I mean, I'm so angry. I know you want me to forgive so-and-so. That's what I should do. God, would you help me? Would you give me strength in my power so that I can forgive so-and-so? I'm so offended by them. This is the way we pray. God, help me to be more successful at whatever. Help me to make more money. Help me, God. Would you help me to be a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better whatever it is, a better employee? Would you promote me at work? These are the prayers that we pray. God, help me while I do it. It's DIY spirituality. It's the way we approach God. What if we actually began to make this shift? What if we actually began to pray differently? What if instead of those kind of prayers, what if we, the next time that something pops up in our lives, something heavy comes up, something where we feel overwhelmed, what if we just began with a confession? What if we approached Jesus and we just said, Jesus, I come to you right now. You are the vine. I am the branch. I just confess to you right now, apart from you, I can do nothing. I have no control over this situation. I have no control over what those people do or what those people think about me or how this whole thing is. I don't have any control over that. And so instead, Jesus, I just need to offload this to you. I just need to completely surrender this to you. I need you to to do whatever work you want to do, and I will be obedient to whatever you tell me to do. Because that's the only thing he asked for. It's just remain in me and be obedient is what he says in that passage. So Jesus, I... I can't do it. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Would you take it? Would you work? And whatever you tell me to do, I'll be obedient to whatever you tell me to do. I wonder if we started praying that way, if we started approaching God that way, if we would start to see God work more in our lives. It sounds simple, doesn't it? I mean, when you say it like that, it just sounds so easy. I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing in the world to actually do. It is the hardest thing in the world to not act in my power, to not try to solve it myself and figure it out myself, but to actually stop and go, wait, hold on. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I'm just gonna, my job is to just remain in him, to come to him. I'm the, he's the vine, I'm the branch. Apart from him, I can do nothing. All I can do is be obedient to whatever he, dis, he tells me to do in this situation. I mean, it is the hardest thing in the world to actually make that shift. But when we do, we begin to see God at work in our lives. And, and let's be honest. Isn't that what all of us really want down at the deepest core of our being? I mean, seriously, you, you want to see God at work in your life. That's why you're here in church this morning in July you're not, what, we don't, what we're not hungry for is to see man at work while God helps him a little bit. Nobody cares about that. Nobody's excited to see that. You didn't get out of bed and come to church this morning so you could see an institution with God helping that institution a little bit, right? Who cares about that? What we're all ultimately hungry for is to see God at work in our lives. We want a God who is real and who is active and who is powerful, and, and who we see at work in our lives. And when we begin to see that God, we begin to trust in him, what happens is he begins to produce fruit in our lives. And when he produces fruit in our lives, then we begin to trust him even more. We depend on him even more, and he does even greater and greater and greater things. And that is what drives all of our faith, seeing God at work. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. Now, if you've been at Frontline for the last year or so, you know this 
passage and this lesson has been a major lesson for us as a church. It's certainly been a huge lesson for me personally. And so um, I, I'm gonna, I've talked about this before. I've shared this before. But uh, it's worth reminding you, and also it's a way for me to update you a little bit on some of the progress. If you've been a part of Frontline, you know about a year ago, it was in um, the summer of 2018, we had had all these leaks in our roof, all this water was coming in, so we'd had an analysis done of our roof, and we were told there are these seven weak spots on our roof here at Frontline. And those, those weak spots were growing and getting worse, and basically what we were told is you need a whole new roof. And the price tag for this whole new roof that we were quoted was $500,000. Now, just to be clear, we did not have $500,000, in case you're wondering about that. On top of that, right about the same time, our sound system began to fail and, be, and began to just kind of keep needing uh, constant money being poured into it. But even this last, the last week, we've had a couple other things fail on the sound system. And so we were quoted a price for a new sound system at $60,000 for a new sound system. So last summer, feeling the pressure of that, what I did is I began to put together a proposal for the LTE, a plan for a fundraising campaign, a three-year fundraising capital campaign to raise $560,000, right? Because that's what you do when you get yourself in this kind of situation. You need a new roof, you need a new sound system, you have to raise money for it. So $560,000 capital campaign. I put that proposal together and I brought it to our leadership team. And just so you know, our leadership team of our church is the spiritual discernment community of our church. We, we discern the will of God together, what God is calling us to next. And so I brought it to the LT. I, I presented this idea, and I, just, I assumed it was a no-brainer. And uh, there was this guy on our leadership team named Jeff Jackson. And as Jeff began to listen to it, he began to push back, and he asked a question. And the question he asked was, have we as a church sought God for what he wants to do in this situation? Isn't that obnoxious? <laughs> Seriously, isn't that like the most annoying thing to ask? And, and the reason it annoyed me so much, even in the meeting when he asked it, was because the truth was I hadn't prayed about this at all. Oh, well, I mean, I'd prayed about it. Here's, here's the way I'd prayed about it. God, would you help me to raise $560,000? God, would you help me? Would you be with me as I put this campaign together? Would you give us the money? Would you make it successful? Da, da, da. But I hadn't come and said, Jesus, this is too big for me. I don't know what to do. What, I'll be obedient to whatever you say. So if you were a part of Frontline at that time, you know the story. What we did is last fall, uh, we decided to put the campaign, the fundraising on hold. We didn't ask you for money. Instead, what we asked you to do was to pray and fast with us. We did 40 days of prayer and fasting as a church. It was a powerful time in our church. It was a powerful time in, in individual lives and families. And at the end of that 40 days of prayer and fasting, you guys gave unprompted $100,000 toward the, the repairs that needed to happen which was amazing because we didn't, ask, again, we didn't ask you for that. You just felt led to do that, and people gave 100000 Well, praise God, I was excited about that. But again, $560,000, $100,000. You see the gap there. So what happened next is what absolutely blew me away. Through, at the end of that campaign, about the, the, the first of the year, um, we, through a connection here at Frontline, got connected with a Christian business owner here in this community, very reputable, owns a um, commercial roofing company that has done lots of work for decades in our community. 
And we got him involved. He, he came and decided to come and, and uh, to have a look at our roof. And so his company, after looking at our roof, said, yes, absolutely, you have these seven-week spots on the roof, and they do need to get addressed right now. But here's the thing. The roof is made of rubber. The rubber on the roof is actually still good, and the seams are actually holding just fine. So, so here's what we'd be willing to do. For $40,000, we will repair the seven-week spots and fix them, and then we will warranty that work for three years so if anything goes wrong in those three years, it's warrantied. We'll come and fix it. And then at the end of three years, if you actually do need a whole new roof, we will do it for a much reduced cost. And so I, this is a way to update. You go ahead to the drone footage. This is our roof. Um, and uh, what you're looking at there, the work has been completed. Wherever you see the black uh, things, a lot of the, the weak spots were around the air conditioning heating units. And so the work has been done. Everything's been um, put together and finished. And you know all the uh, rain that we got in June? We didn't have to set out a single bucket. There was no leaks at all. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Which if you, if you were here, you know, and you know, I mean, you come in on a Sunday if it was raining, there were buckets. You're walking around buckets to get into this place. Uh, that are set up to catch all the rain coming through. So praise God, that got taken care of. And then with the remaining $60,000 after the $40,000 had been spent for the roof, we are in the process right now of upgrading our sound system. You're, you've seen some upgrades. Some of this was already budgeted stuff. Um, but in the next month, you're going to see a ton of changes uh, with the, the, the tech booth coming down and more chairs added and, this, and a new sound system coming in. And yeah, it's going to sound better and that's awesome. But the best part about that is it's a sound system that will meet our needs and last us for years to come, and God, God provided ma magnificently for our needs through that. Now, here's why I share all that with you. The question that I want to ask you is, why did God choose to do that for us? That's actually a question I've been wrestling with and pondering through on my, my time away over the last month. Why did God decide to do that to, for us? I mean, did he, did he choose to do that for us so we would have a really cool sizzle story to tell? And by the way, it is a really cool story to tell, and I have told it a lot of times to a lot of people. I, th I think the real reason God did that for us is not just so we'd have a cool story to tell. I think the real reason God chose to do that for us as a church is because he wants to show us who he is through every need that comes up in our lives. He wants to show us that it's him who produces the fruit, not us in our DIY spirituality. So, so what does that mean for you personally? And what that means is in your life personally, every single need that comes up, every time something presents itself that is too big for you, the, the, any moment that comes up that is just overwhelming, and you're like, man, I don't even know what to do right now. Every one of those moments is an opportunity for God to show himself faithful to you. It's an opportunity for Jesus to show you who he is. And it's an invitation into this dependent relationship, this dependent life. If you, if you read any of the more ancient spiritual writers, they all use the same life. They use different terms. Some of them call it the independent life. Some of them call it the self-reliant life. Some of them refer to striving and all this kind of stuff. But it, whatever the language is, I'm using the words DIY spirituality. They all talk about this shift moving from independence to dependence on the person of Jesus. So the, the worship team is going to come back out and we're going to prepare to close this morning. Here is the question I want to ask you. Here's the challenge. I want to challenge you. Maybe you're saying, well, how do I begin with this shift? I, I, I would say pick one thing. Can you identify one area of your life right now 
that just feels heavy. And yeah, I know it's July. I know we're in and out vacation mode and all that. But what is it right now that you find your mind going to even when you're supposed to be relaxing? The challenge is not for you to seek to try to do God's will and produce fruit yourself. The challenge is for you to know the person of Jesus more and to depend on him in the midst of whatever you're facing. So can you identify with that one thing? What does it look like for you to change the way you pray instead of saying, God, would you help me? Whatever. But to begin to say, God, I just come to you. I confess that you are the vine, I'm the branch. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I have no control over this. So I just offload it to you. I give it to you, Jesus. I rest in you. I trust in you. And I will be obedient to whatever you tell me to do here. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's circumstantial. It's a situation that's popped up and you have no idea what to do next. Jesus is inviting you. Are you tired? Are you weary of do-it-yourself spirituality? Good. You are closer than you realize to the life that Jesus wants for you. I will, I'll close with this. Last night, I had been away for a few weeks. I came in last night, as I always do on Saturday night. Before I preach, I come in to pray and to uh, go over the sermon and just be with the Lord. And as I came in, Brad Vanderson was actually here, and he was working on his sermon. By the way, a pastor working on their sermon, like writing their sermon on Saturday night is not a good thing. That's usually not a good sign. So I went into his office, and I knocked on the door, and I gave him a hug. And, and for those of you who don't know, maybe you're newer, Brad Vanderson was part of our staff for years. And just this summer, he went to be the lead pastor of a church in Wayland called New Life that has become a third campus of ours in our network called the Zero Collective Network. They've become a, a sister church, a, a third campus of us. So he's gone to be the lead pastor and is just leading so well. The church is responding so well to his leadership this summer. And I had caught wind of a little bit of what had happened this past week, but I went into his office and he just looked exhausted, just worn out. And he's in there writing his sermon. He just, he begins to tell me about this past week. And uh, in Wayland, where New Life Church is this past week, there was a student who is a part of New Life Church and whose family is a very much a big part of, of New Life Church in Wayland and a part of the community. This student this past week lost his life. It's a pizza delivery kit. And he was in his car going to deliver a pizza and he pulled up to an intersection where the grass had not been mowed. And the grass had gotten really tall. And what they think happened is he couldn't see around the grass and so, and so he pulled out and like that. Some tall grass ended this kid's life. And that has reverberated through the community of Wayland. Uh, this family was well known in the high school there and in the uh, and in the church there. And, and so it's, people are grieving, people are mourning this loss, people are asking questions about why something like this happens. It's so unexplainable. And so this past week, New Life has had the opportunity as a church to really be present to the community. There was a vigil that, uh, that they hosted um, where hundreds of people came. And for a small church, it's incredible. Brad wrote a piece that's been viewed over 15,000 times as people have 
grieved and sought comfort. And yesterday, Saturday, was the funeral. And Brad did the funeral. And uh, at this funeral, tons of people learned about New Life and, and said, hey, we're going to come on Sunday. And so this morning, Sunday morning, New Life is expecting a ton of visitors just because people are grieving and asking these questions and they're, con- they're getting connected through this whole thing to this family that's a part of the church. And so uh, Brad said, the worst part is, he said, I'm so exhausted. He said, we just got news that we have no power. The church has no power. From the storms that came through yesterday, it knocked out all the power and they were being told that it would be Monday at the earliest uh, that they would have any power. In fact, there was a pastor who is part of our church, but uh, also guest speaks a few different places. He was here this morning because in Moline, which is right there in that area, they didn't have any power. So he got to come to church this morning. They still are without power down there. And Brad said, we're going to be without power until Monday, they're telling us. And so I don't even know if we're going to be able to have church and all these people are coming. And you could just see it on them. And so we began to muse on the fact that the sermon that he's so exhausted, he comes in Saturday night to work on a sermon. And the, and the sermon he's working on is this one. We're preaching the same sermon at all three campuses. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You don't have control over storms that knock power out and you don't have control over tall grass, whether it gets mowed and whether a kid pulls out and gets hit in oncoming traffic. You don't have control over any of that. Remain in me. And so Brad and I, we just gathered and we just prayed yesterday. We just did exactly what this passage. We just gave Jesus is bigger than us. Come to you, we remain in you. We'll be obedient to whatever you say. We'll be obedient to whatever you do. This is yours. I got word at 7 a.m. this morning that New Life Church had power. They're the only, in this little block that they're in, they have power, and this whole area still didn't have power at 7 a.m. this morning. And so this morning they had church. I can't wait to hear the reports of it, but there were people we know that came from the community for the first time to New Life who are grieving and who are hurting and who are looking for the kind of hope that the only hope that there really is, and that's the hope that we find in the person of Jesus. What is it for you? What's the thing for you that's too big that you need to surrender? Would you bow with me? Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are very aware that the message of the world and the culture that we live in states that it's about doing it yourself. It's about becoming independent. It's about proving yourself. It's about you working. And so oftentimes, God, we come to you and we, we ask for your advice, but then it's about us working and us proving and us providing. And this morning, God, we recognize that that kind of life leads to nothing but endless strife, endless toil, endless working, and total failure. And we confess today that apart from you, we can do nothing thank you that the gospel message is not you work really hard and I'll give you some advice from heaven. The gospel message is remain in me. I've already paid the price. I've already won the victory through your death and through your resurrection. And so it's in trusting and leaning and surrendering into what you have for us that we can experience that. So this morning, God, whatever this one thing is for each of us, God, we offer this up to you and we say, God, we will remain in you. We will be obedient to whatever you call us to be. Would you take it? Would you do what only you can do? And when that happens, God, would it be in such a way that only you get the glory? 
only you, Jesus, are worthy of the praise that comes when fruit is produced in our lives. God, we want to see you at work. We don't want to see man at work with you helping a little bit. We want to see you at work in our lives, in our church, in our communities, in Wayland, in Grand Rapids, in Byron Center. We want to see you at work. It's what we're hungry for. So would you do it as we remain in you? It's in Jesus' name we all said.